Good morning. It's good to see you. I had a great thing. We had a great Thanksgiving at our house. We had three and a half turkeys. That was a record. We're uh, I'm big on leftovers, but we had a lot of people, and so uh, we had it was a three and a half turkey uh, Thanksgiving. Um, something about Thanksgiving I like to think about, or I thought about, is um, at this stage, you know, we like a full home, and it it improves Thanksgiving. You know, Eleven people's more is at some level feels to me better than ten, and twelve is better than eleven. And uh, you just want a full home. You want more joy. Uh, it's that sort of holiday. But it breaks down. I, what I mean to say is I'd be inclined to build a principle about Thanksgiving. You know, if for me I enjoy six people more than five and seven more than six and 12 more than 11, I'd be inclined to make this principle up that the more people at my house for Thanksgiving, the better. Except for the fact that I know this eventually breaks down because I don't think I would want 200 people there for Thanksgiving. Like when I think of that, I go, that wouldn't be, I wouldn't want that. Um, and I'm not saying it wouldn't be good. I'm saying it would be totally other. Maybe it wouldn't be good. I'm inclined to think it wouldn't be good. But maybe it, wouldn't, maybe it would be fine. It would just be totally different than my Thanksgiving experience. Or the Thanksgiving experience I think that most of you, you think of when you think of Thanksgiving. The, the same is true with children. Uh, we have four children. And there's been occasions I've tried to justify a fifth to my uh, wife. And one of my arguments has been, we're happier with two than we were with one. And our lives are more, uh, we're more rich with three than we were with two. And we're better with four than we were with three. You see where I'm going? (laughs) Except for the fact that I know this My temptation to build an argument out of this is challenged by the fact that I know my life would not be richer if I had 2,000 children or 200 children or 35 children. At some point, my brain goes, well, you don't want that. And it's not that that wouldn't be good. I mean, I suppose if the Lord blessed me with 35 children, there'd be its own good about it. It's just something that's totally other than what I think of when I think of family. When I think of family, I can think of six around the table or seven or eight or even ten around the table. I can, I can kind of get my joyful heart around that number. I cannot think of like seven tables where I never even speak to the children, the youngest children, because I've hardly met them. I met them in the hospital. And then I'll meet them at graduation. You know, that, that seems other I think this sort of thing happens in the lives of churches that are small and become large. This principle at work. That what happens when a church is small is it has a feeling about it. And in that feeling, um, in its smallness, it embraces another family or another two families. They're better. This is better. This is better. We're 50. Now we're 60. Now we're... We're 75. This is the experience that's happening downtown on our sister campus right now is, oh, new people are here. And it's better. It's, it's the same thing, just better. 
But I also think, and this is is classically true, I think, in the lives of churches, is there is a, a place where, as you grow, the principle breaks down. And you become something other. So when you're small, the growth is better. But eventually, if you add a million people to the fellowship, it may be good, it may not be good, but it certainly is different. It's other, it's something other than, than what it was when it was small. It's, it's experienced a change in kind, not simply kind of an improvement of degree. Why are we talking about this? Well, the series is Zooming In on Discipleship. The purpose of Zooming In on Discipleship is to focus on what God says to the church, specifically to our church, specifically to our campus in this church, about how to raise disciples. It's being preached. These same sermons are being preached downtown, but from the opposite direction. They're being preached from a perspective of smallness, and we're being preached from a perspective of once having been small. But it, we're be preaching on it now because uh, this is, uh, I think, a time in the church when we, uh, whether we want to or not, we're asking questions about ourselves. You might not realize it. I'll share, I'll share a personal experience. I'm, I'm offering you as much as I can in this, in this uh, thinking about the church so that you can uh, come along, maybe. When... Uh, as many as you know, we are asking questions about the independent school. And if you're a guest or a visitor and you don't know what that is, there is a school about two and a half, three miles down the road that um, is a facility that is large enough to meet um, the facility aspirations that have been expressed here at 505 Schoolhouse. And so the questions of stewardship incline us to say, well, before we build here, why don't we ask about the usage of a pre-existent site? That's the basic, basic thought. And this sermon is not about any of that. But something happened. When the question came out in the fellowship, it was almost like the old time, remember the old time cameras that had the light bulbs that would pop? Pah! It felt that way. Like there was this, this photographic picture, uh, at least as I felt it, of, of a sensation. Obviously, there's emotion attached to any kind of idea of building or certainly leaving something that's been part of our life for a while. And, and, and that's natural, and that's there. But what I saw and felt when the question came into the fellowship was a little bit of a wince by some people based upon the fact that the gathering space at Independence is very large. We could easily sit 600 people comfortably in that. If that was our church, you could easily put 600 people there. And when that idea came in, several of us went, did that. Do we really want to do that? Now, there could be multiple reasons. Okay, so there could be good reasons and bad reasons and neutral reasons, right? It could just be nostalgia. It could be uh, all sorts of things. But I do think this is, there was something of value. In other words, when the, the reason I feel like it was a flashbulb is because it felt to me like the Lord said, record it. Something, something very important just happened. And I think this is what it is. I think in, 
in the, in, that's not in the minds of all of you. In, in fact, many of you came to a church that was never small. You, this, you came to this church as it is, is now. And this is the Thanksgiving numbers, but we get bigger. Um, but I think in the minds of some was this, if we have a room of 600, like I like having Thanksgiving with 12 people, but if I did it with that many people, it's something totally different. In other words, I think there was, a, there, there was a thought of if we transition to a large space, which then allows the fellowship to become large, will we permanently lose something that's small that has intrinsic value? I think that's a great question. I mean, I think that is a really Really good question. I once said, uh, back in September, how big the church should be is the wrong question, but it leads us to right questions. This is a great question. What are the essential characteristics of small church that ought to exist regardless of the size of a church? I think that, that every Christian would be well benefited by trying to wrap, wrap their minds and heart around that, seeking the Lord on that question. So that's, that's the purpose of this morning. This morning is ground zero in the whole sermon series. It's ground zero as far as, as how, what are we supposed to think of about smallness in the church, even though the church is always growing. God's church is always growing. And yet, within it, what are the elements that are essentially small? I'll give it to you. This is the question. Is there anything essential to making disciples that only lives in the smallness? That's the question. Is there anything essential in making disciples that only lives in the smallness? Because as you remember, we're not making believers. We're making disciples. We're not simply trying to invite people into a confession of faith. We're trying to challenge people to a life of faith. That's being a disciple. So are there any essential elements of the life of the disciple that are connected to or exclusive to smallness? I think there are. And I think it's all over the Bible. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. You can turn to Numbers 26. And as you do, it's page 116 if you're using one of our Bibles. And as you turn there, I, I will explain. We're not going to study any one passage uh, much at all. The goal this morning, or the purpose in using the scripture this morning, is to, is to barrage you with a, uh, an artillery barrage of scripture that convinces you of the truth of the principle. Okay, so we're not going to kind of dig deep or drill deep in one passage to, to flesh out the principle and all of its intricacies. Okay, we'll continue to do that in the series. What I want to do this morning is simply demonstrate to you that some smallness, some intentional organized smallness has always been an essential presence or attribute of a disciple-making community. That's what I want to show you. And so I want us to start in the Old Testament. We'll look at what the Old Testament has to say, and then we'll transition to the New Testament. And the Old Testament word... Uh, or, or place that I want to land on is, is this idea that they called the clan. So last Sunday we talked about 
uh, the fact that the Christian experience is happening at multiple levels. We said you know, it's happening in a public environment like this, and it's happening in a social environment, a personal and an intimate, and that sort of thing. And we said, look, it's, you even see certain expressions of this among the Hebrews. They had the nations, the tribes, the clans, the families, and then, of course, the individuals. Well, I want us to focus this morning on the clan, look at the, the attributes of a clan, um, because it is the largest small thing among the Hebrews. The tribe was huge. So the tribe could have 40,000 people in it. But the clan was knowable. People knew one another in the clan. It, says, it feels awkward to say that. Because uh, we have kind of a negative take on the word. The C word. Uh, people knew one another. It was bigger than a family. And remember, their families were bigger than our families. So if you come from good um, Roman Catholic roots where you have a big family and they all live within an hour and a half of you, the clan was bigger than that. Okay, that would have just been your family. The clan would have been kind of all the way out, maybe second, third cousins, people who had married in the village. The village. That's what the clan would have been back then. And it still exists, by the way, in the Near East ancient Near East, to this sort of way. A, tri- a, a tribal village might be uh, a, another thing that's akin to it. A place where there's no secrets. Small town, okay? That is getting to the idea of a clan. In modern America, if you, since we are so distant in some ways from these, or so we presume, I'll share it to you this way. If I'm, this is hypothetical, but I think you'll be familiar with something like this happening. If I'm sitting in the barber chair, visiting with my barber, and I say, yeah, you know, Kids these days, they sit inside, they play games, and, you know, houses were all walled off with fences, right? That's one of these easy conversations to get into, especially with someone of a prior generation, because they're going to tell you how it used to be. And they're going to say, when I was a kid, we didn't sit inside all day around a TV screen. We didn't even have TVs, they'll typically tell you. And then they'll say, in fact, we didn't even have fences in our yard. Everybody's house backed up, and it was just one big communal place where everybody played, and your neighbors knew you. And they might even say, golly, your neighbors could even spank you. Like if they saw you horsing around, they would grab you by the ear. And you were glad to get caught by them because if they told your dad, it would be even worse. You've heard these things, right? I think that's like a clan. That's the basic principle. It's a neighborhood that has a sense of accountability for the people in the neighborhood. Okay, that's the principle. That's the idea that's undergirding this word, this word clan, except for among the Hebrews, it was a formal reality. So, so let's look. Uh, real quick, first of all, I want to say clans were fundamental to identity. This is the first thing to think about. Clans were fundamental to identity. So as an example, when King Saul is selected by the prophet Samuel, he says this. Samuel says to him, Saul, you're going to be king. Samuel says, I am. What is this? What's happening? We are the least of the tribes, and I'm, the, we, I'm in the least of the clans of the tribe. You see how... His clan is his identity. In fact, many people think in the ancient Near East, the family was second to the clan. Your identity. And, and that hints of that are even there with, with Saul saying, look, my tribe is the least of the tribes and my clan within the tribe of Benjamin is the least of the clans. He doesn't say, in my family, he doesn't do that. 
David does the same thing, by the way, when he's betrothed to Saul's daughter, Michael. She's in a different clan. She's of the tribe of Benjamin, of the clan, of a different clan. And, and he's over here. He's from Judah. So this was a little bit atypical. But he makes this comment. He says, I'm marrying outside of, I'm, she's not in my league, is his point. Like, what is someone of my tribe and clan doing with her? Is the nature. The book of Ruth, the entire book of Ruth, is built around the identity of a clan. It is... It's kind of a documentary of clan life. If you just want to appreciate what's happening, that's it. But Naomi, she leaves with, you know, and her husband dies, and she returns back to her village. Why? Because the village belonged to the clan, and at least there she might be cared for by the collective. There might be a collective sense of responsibility for her if she goes home. And when she gets home, those very things happen. So clan is identity. Here's the, here's the second one. Clans were fundamental to organization. You'll see this in Numbers 26. That the, the nation of God and the nation of Israel and the tribes of Israel used clans, thought of clans formally as formal places of accountability. So if you look in 26, and we're not going to read much of it. I picked this, by the way, because last Sunday we did the first census in Numbers. I thought, we'd, I thought there'd be style points for doing the second census in Numbers. But apparently not. Uh, but it, here in the 26th chapter, at the very least, the clan, word clan is used about 50 times. Because the census was built around the clans. The detail, the level of detail of interest was down to the clans. Find out who's in these clans. right? They didn't really care who's below the clans. Why? Because the clans were caring for them. The clans have it. They were the lowest, serious, formal level of accountability. Okay, that's the second thing you'll see. Number three, clans possessed the land. The land, the promised land came in possession and was distributed down to the level of the clans. In Joshua 18, you find this, that the land of Simeon is marked out. And the land, well, the land of the tribes are marked out to the tribes. And then among the tribes, the land within the tribe is marked out to the clans. The towns within the land of Simeon were dispersed formally to the clans. And so you'll find something like this in, in Luke. It says, and it came about that time that Caesar, uh, he commanded a census be taken throughout the land, right? So what do we find? We find Joseph and Mary returning home to Bethlehem. Why? Because they are from the area. Their clan grew up in Bethlehem. It doesn't matter that they live up in Nazareth. The land of their clan is Bethlehem. And so they're returning back because... Their identity is forever etched in stone as being from that area. You see that. Here's a number, number four. Marriage traditionally took place within the clan. Genesis 24 is a good example of this. That's when Abraham says, listen, I don't want my son Isaac marrying one of the women around this land. And he sends his servant where? Way out of Canaan. Way, thousand miles away. Why? Because he wants his son to marry someone within the clan. And he does. Rebecca is a distant relative of Isaac. And it was appropriate back then. It was appropriate that you could even marry a half-sister or you could marry someone all the way out to a first cousin, which, by the way, exists even to this day in areas of the ancient Near East. That it is more appropriate to marry, not immediately, but about one step out, it's more appropriate to do that 
we feel sometimes that that's borderline incestuous, but it's actually of greater propriety among some people. Why? Because it keeps the land together. It keeps their identity tight. If your signature identity is in your clan, you do those things to keep it tight. Property, number five, property was preserved within the clan. Numbers 36 gives an account, this is the account it gives, of a man who's had daughters and he hasn't had any surviving sons. And so when he dies, the land's going to go to his daughters. But land passed through sons, didn't it? So now he's in a quandary. And they go to Moses and they say, here's the problem. The land is being passed to my daughters, but they're going to marry and it's going to go away. And the clan will lose land. That's the problem. And Moses says, you're right, that ought not to be the problem. And in that case, what he says is, in a case where a a daughter is an inheritor of property, the man who marries her takes on kind of the inheritance of this clan now. It's almost like she pulls him into the clan because the land cannot leave the clan. Clans were responsible for protection. If you drank a little too much, and you lost the farm at a poker game, and you sold yourself into slavery to a nearby tribe, tribe of Simeon, right? You sell yourself into slavery so that your family goes, can eat. This was the rule. The rule was, well, first of all, there were limits. Within seven years, at some point within seven years, you were going to be free. The Bible says you cannot have perpetual slavery with, among the Hebrew people. Okay? So that was rule number one. So there would be an end point to it. Rule number two was, if you can work hard enough that you can raise enough money to buy your own freedom, good for you. Okay? Rule number three was, that the clan he came from can come buy you back. There was a sense of accountability to the family and the clan from which you came, that if they can, obviously your family can't buy you back because you sold yourself into slavery. But the clan has a collective responsibility. In other words, the law is saying you cannot sell this slave to anybody. You can't, you can't sell him at all. You, only his clan can redeem him. It's not an issue of slave selling. It's an issue of redemption. The tribe has responsibility. Likewise with women, if, if a wife becomes a widow because of the death of her husband. In the ancient times, that was a very bad thing because who's going to till the earth? Who's going to grow the crops? All of those things, right? There, weren't, there was not a safety net beneath it. And so in those cases, the scriptures provided to say that the, the collective clan, within the clan, that another man within the clan could redeem her as a wife of his own, even if it means a second wife so that she doesn't starve. And that if she ever gives birth to a child, that child is going to have the last name of her first husband. It's very, very serious about caring for the clan and for the family in that case. But that was a responsibility of the clan, and you see that in the book of Ruth. That is the story that kind of works itself out in Ruth. Ruth chapter 4. Finally, clans are responsible for justice. And there's certainly more things that are true, but for the purpose of time, clans are responsible for justice. So you'll see in 2 Samuel on occasion where a woman has two sons, they get in a fight in the field, one son kills another son, and she ends up at the feet of King David saying, stop, stop my clan, please stop my clan, because they are coming to exact justice, and they're going to demand the life of my last remaining son. Why? Because the responsibility for justice resided among the clan. The tribe doesn't care about that stuff. 
the clan is larger than a family. Okay, think of it as an, uh, a well-known neighborhood or s- the small town feel. But here's the principle. Everybody knew one another. There was a sense, there was, it was a natural and formal sense of accountability in this group of people. Okay? Another way of thinking about it is there are essential elements in the clan, the ancient clan, that were larger, too big for the family to do, okay? Like redeeming a kinsman. Too, so there were elements preserving justice, right? Leaving justice to families is Hatfields and McCoys, okay? But, so there were things that the clan was called to that were too large for the family to do, but there are things that the clan was called to that are too small for the tribe to do. The tribe is never going to be able to oversee with reliability the needs that are happening in the neighborhoods, in the villages. I just want you to appreciate the essential nature of some of this. So you'll say, if it's so important, where is the New Testament equivalent? It's a really good question. And we're on our way there. Because I will say, it does bear mentioning that the, the definitional lines and boundary markers of a clan over time in Scripture begin to fade. And I think the biggest single reason for that is the monarchy, the king. You put a king in place, and he begins to consolidate power. And to consolidate power means to reduce the power of those other identities. And that's what you have. In fact, in 2 Samuel 14, when she goes to the king David and says, listen, the clan is going to exact justice. The clan is going to do what the clan ought to do is essentially the issue. King David says, don't worry, not a hair on his head will be harmed. I'll take care of it. And you actually see the authority of the clan being toned back a little bit. And the thought is, by people who study this, is that over the years, that, that happened again and again. And by the way, a lot of times identity of clan end up resolving into town identity. So someone will refer to themselves, David. David was an Ephrathite. Okay, is that his clan? No, that's his town. That's his region. But it's essentially the clan because the clan was given the town. So things kind of cross over and blend. And so by the New Testament, you find the idea of clan being possessed in towns. You find it being possessed in this, the Greek word oikos, which means family, but it was a much bigger, much, more, much looser notion. But this is the big deal. This is the big thing. Is the church of Jesus Christ, when the church gives birth, is given birth in the New Testament, it is creating new family, an entirely new definition of family. In fact, doesn't Jesus say on occasion, if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing to leave your mother and your father and your sister and your brother. You have to be able to leave your family behind. Why? Because oftentimes in the Christian faith, you had to, by choice, leave your family and your clan in order to be Christian. You became dead to them. And so some of this doesn't carry over because it cannot carry over. It refuses to carry over. But the question is, can we see the principles at work in the New Testament? And I will say, absolutely. And so here's our task. We're going to read more We're going to, well, we're going to read scriptures somewhat, but we're going to look at more passages even than we did in the Old Testament. What I want to do, it's a tall order. I want to go to every single uh, epistle, or at least as many as we have time for. Every single letter that was written to the churches in the New Testament. So Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 
in the letters to the Thessalonians, we're going to look at those letters and say, if this principle, this essential principle of you ought to know one another and you ought to live life together, if that's present, we should expect to find it with great regularity. And in fact, I think this is what we'll find. And so you can turn to Romans. Now, I have slides up. Here's, there's some of the passages in Romans. This is the pattern, by the way, of Paul's letters to the churches. He almost always, with a few exceptions, almost always starts the letter with a greeting, and then it's theology, right? The righteous shall live by faith. That's Romans, and he works out justification by faith, and then he works out the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then he works out the role of, of the Gentile Christians among the Jewish believers, that's 8, 9, 10, 11, and then we get into 12 and we start into the natural Christian life and the works of the gifts. But in all, uh, this is a classic format for Paul. He starts with theory theology and ends with practical theology. So Jesus Christ is, was crucified and was resurrected, therefore love your neighbor. That's the flow of his letters. So on the back side of all of these letters, this is what we find. And if you look here, this is just an example here in Romans, you, you'll find exactly this. By the time we get to the 13th chapter, the interest of Paul as he's writing the churches becomes how they treat one another. So 13.8, let no debt remain outstanding except your continual debt of love to one another. Boom. Like the door is swung open and now Paul is worried about how we care for one another. You get to the next, cha- the next chapter here, chapter 14. He says, he just progresses. He says, in fact, don't judge one another. And this section is saying, listen, if, you're, if your friend in the church doesn't think it's right to eat this, well, get over yourself and stop judging them about it. Stop being so judgmental. And then he progresses from being judgmental. And in fact, he says, in fact, you have on you your own responsibility not to be a stumbling block to him. So even though you think it's silly that he refuses to eat, you know, Meet on Friday. Don't exhibit your liberty in Christ in front of him so as to make him stumble. And then it goes from there to say, in fact, bear with the failings of the weak. So from 13.8, continual debt of love to one another, to don't be judgmental, to don't create a stumbling block, to bear with the, the failings of, of the weak, there's this, this rise this rise, and so that in 15, 5 through 7, just let me, let me read this to you. And I'm going to go through the letters, so if you just want to page through with me, you can. We're in Romans. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of his word. That's essentially how this conversation ends. I'm saying that all of this is bigger than the four walls of your house. You can't do this in the four walls of your house and satisfy its requirements. It is involving other people. And this is smaller than a really... Can you imagine this really taking place in a room of a thousand people? I can't. I cannot imagine preaching love one another in a room of a thousand people expecting that that room will, will be able to take that and live it out well if there's no other subdivision in the body of Christ. If this is the only experience, if, if the public space is the only experience 
where we hear the word taught, but there's not actual, real Christian community and smallness. I don't know how this, I don't know how this happens. I don't know how it happens in a way that is convincing to the Lord that we take him seriously and that we're trying to make disciples. First and second Corinthians. The entire letter, by the way, is practical theology for first Corinthians. I mean, the whole problem of the church in first Corinth, in first Corinth, in Corinth, is that they have lost a sense of the community out of celebration of their individual liberty. And so the whole letter is, listen, you, you thought you can do this, but you can't because you are not your own. Your body is not your own. It belongs to Christ. And Christ, by extension, is a body of believers. And so you can't just do what you want. And so throughout the whole letter of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is this continual trend to the point where, regarding the Lord's Supper, the passage that I recited this morning over the Lord's Supper comes from 1 Corinthians 11. And it's embedded in a conversation that says that where Paul is indicting them as a community, saying, you guys are making a mockery of the Lord's Supper by the way you abuse your own community. And he cites, he says, some of you are showing up, some of you are not eating breakfast so that you can come to the Lord's Supper and gorge. He, thinks, he says, that is messed up. That you're, you're gorging on Christ to fill your stomach. And he says, and the cost of that is, there's people waiting to eat that when they finally sit down at the table, there's breadcrumbs. And that's all they have for the meal. Because you swamped in with your hungry belly and wolfed it all down. He says, he says in the, the, the seriousness of an 11, he says, that's why some of you are sick and some of you have died. In other words, the Lord takes this so seriously that you have abused his body and that you have taken abuse and liberty of the fellowship. And he says, don't do that. He says, in fact, before you come to the Lord's table, eat so that you're not hungry, so that your heart is pure about the elements of the Lord's table. Now, does that have any place? Can that live? Can the heart of that teaching live in a room of 2,000 people? I don't see how it does. Now, if that room of 2,000 people was a tribe, okay, I'm just using broad terms, live with me here, and it had clans, then I begin to appreciate, okay, there is a place to take this teaching back that has a place to reside. Second Corinthians ends this way. I'll just read this passage to you because it's so good. This is the way the book ends. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Isn't that a good? This is good. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. That's good. Galatians. The back of Galatians does the same thing. Chapter 5 and 6. The Lord, the Lord or Paul pivots in 5 and 6 to do the same thing. He begins in Galatians 5 to say love your neighbor. He begins to continue in five to talk about the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace. All of those things are being taught in relationship to the community of believers. And then he ends in six, talking about how they ought to bear one another's burdens. Listen to six, one through five. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. 
but at each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast, <clears throat> to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. There's this, there's this perspective that the Christian life is so interconnected to the other people around. And again, I just have to say, how is this done if our only identity is this large family? This is what happened. The, the clan of Jacob, uh, I'm learning as I'm studying that this is classically how churches grow, okay? And it's embarrassing to find out that people have written books saying, this is what you're about to do, and we've done it. Which is, you start off small, and when you grow big, you, you never subdivide, and so it's like the clan became the tribe and never established clans. And so the, the one anothering that has to happen in a healthy way, there's no structure to ensure that it's happening in a healthy way. Now, it's happening all the time in healthy ways here. I'm saying there's no organized structure to ensure that it's happening the way it ought to be happening. It's happening because we're not too, too big yet, and we have good disciples of Jesus Christ who are present, who are doing it on their own accord. But there ought to be something. Ephesians. Ephesians 4 through 1 through 6 is about the unity of the body. 4, 25 through 52. I just want to, I want to read 25 through 52 for you. Just listen to this. Listen to the scriptures as it's spoken about how we are to be. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For, as we, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. We always think that that's for husbands and wives. <laughs> that's for the church. Of whom are husband and wives. And give no opportunity to the, to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. There is some level that is larger than a family, but that is smaller than a huge tribe that has to exist in order for a church to claim it's trying to make disciples. I don't know how we continue to say we make disciples if we're not creating or caring or being responsible for a place like this. Philippians, uh, the rest of them I've just li- listed. Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. It's, so, it's so, where, so much everywhere in the New Testament among the churches. But I'm just simply trying to give you, give you this, this a sense of belief that there's a place that God has called us to to belong and that place is real community where people really know each other, where there really is no possible anonymity and where life has to be lived out together, the good and the bad. It's not simply a place to go and feel good about yourself. It's a legitimate place where people encounter you in Christ for your good and for their good. And I think that that belongs in every single church. 
no matter how big the church goes. Remember, this is not, ought the church grow big or not? That's not the question. The people of God, had, Jacob seemed to have no problem growing from a family to a clan to a tribe to a nation. God doesn't seem at all concerned about bigness. He simply seems concerned to make sure there's some essential smallness. What we need to grow in our church is our smallness, not our bigness. We need to care for how we're connecting in small ways. This is not an argument against bigness. This is an argument to say that our church, if it is sincere about making disciples, has to create and foster places where people know one another and have a sense and spirit of accountability over the lives of their families. Amen.